From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. You're a gun owner. You carry a firearm, and you've planned a trip with your family, so you load up the car and hit the road. But while GPS makes it easy to navigate a family trip, navigating the patchwork of state gun laws can be difficult. That's why one attorney decided to write a book for travelers with firearms. It answers questions such as, which states allow carry by non-residents? Do you have a duty to notify? Can you carry in all the rest stops? What about state parks or magazine restrictions or transporting long guns? That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Scott Kappas, attorney and author of the popular book, Traveler's Guide to the Firearm Laws of the 50 States. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the podcast. Dean, it's great to be with you. Well, Scott, I've been using your book, The Traveler's Guide to the Firearms Laws of the 50 States, for, well, seems like forever. And it's uh, it's in my office. It's something that I uh, that I always keep with me. It's a really handy reference. I want to talk about that because it's such a popular book. But before we get to that, I just want to talk about you a little bit and, and get an idea of who you are and uh, the kind of legal practice you have and so on. So you're a, an attorney in Kentucky. Is that right? Yes. Uh-huh. And I've, I've been in practice, I guess, since the mid-90s. I, currently, I'm doing a, probably most of my work with the book, distributing it, researching it. I'm not doing nearly as much practice as I used to. Uh, when I did practice on a regular basis, I did general practice in civil areas. I also did work for a Louisville firm as their like Covington office, but uh, the book's taken over a lot of what I do now. And, and I, in the last couple of years, I haven't done nearly as much practice. So I'm still an attorney. I just don't really <laughs> take on new cases because I focus primarily on the book. And I also help my wife out with her business. She has a separate business that's unrelated, but we, we work together. So it's, it's one of those fun things. I've always enjoyed uh, guns. I, uh, you know, grew up with them. Uh, in fact, my motivation in going to uh, law school was to eventually work in law enforcement some way, the FBI and whatnot. And as it turned out, uh, when I graduated, uh, there was a three-year hiring freeze at the federal level for most of those kind of jobs. And so I got into private practice and then I started writing a book. And it was interesting because the initial motivation was I had taken a trip with my parents back, I think it was in college. And we had, I think it had been up uh, around Massachusetts, and I saw this huge sign entering the you know, state of Massachusetts saying, you know, one year in prison for violating uh, Massachusetts gun laws. And I'm thinking, well, you know, must mean like holding up a, a 7-Eleven with a, with a gun, you know, something that we normally associate with a gun crime. And then I found out just having a gun in your car could get you arrested for something like that. And it came, it was kind of odd because in Kentucky, we always had the ability to carry a loaded gun in our car as long as it either wasn't concealed or it was kept in the glove compartment. And to see that just having it in your car could get you arrested 
kind of surprised me. So, yeah, I started looking into it and didn't really get into it completely enough to, you know, write the book. But then when I started practicing, I had a few cases that uh, that came up that were I didn't directly handle myself, but friends that did more criminal work with me did. And it was a case of where in Kentucky, you know, this fellow, one fellow in particular, had had a brother-in-law who was a deputy sheriff. And he said, I, I carry my gun with me. This is all before the permit laws went into effect. And uh, he had asked his brother-in-law how to carry it in the car. He said, well, just keep it in plain view. You know, stick it on the dash. Let me know you've got it if I approach the car, and you're fine. Well, that was the case in, uh, in Kentucky. But he made a trip across the river to Ohio and got pulled over once and uh, got into a lot of trouble uh, for it. And he was facing a potential felony charge at the time because he had it loaded and concealed in a vehicle. And he, you know, it was the case where he didn't realize And a lot of people didn't realize that the law changed dramatically when you cross state lines. Uh, When you take a cross-country road trip, you expect the traffic laws to pretty much be the same. And, you know, there are a few minor changes. I remember my father, he worked out in California when he was in college back in the 50s for one summer at Disneyland when it first opened. And he said one of the big things he notices out in California, you could make a right turn on red. And that was something you couldn't yet do in Kentucky. Minor difference, you know, with the traffic laws, but still a difference. Now, most of that is very uniform, so you don't think of anything that's going to really change if you're traveling. But and I, I'm Scott, and Scott I, I remember that. I remember when the law changed, and it was really bizarre. You, you know, you yeah. felt like you were breaking the traffic law when you turned right on red. <laughs> I, I, I come from West Virginia, and I remember when it became okay to do that. And, uh, you know, they, they had to put up signs telling you that you could turn right on red. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I think my dad was out there in 58, and he said, yeah, he said it was really a surprise. But it was one of those things where everything else was pretty much uniform with what you would do in any other state. But that was one little minor change that occurred with the traffic laws. But with the gun laws, things just change dramatically when you cross state lines. And that was just one case, you know, going from Kentucky over to Ohio. And then you go up to some of the northeastern states, uh, you know, like in New York, pretty much you have to have a permit to simply possess a handgun in your house. And it's been the law since, I think, 1911, 1912, the Sullivan Law, they called it. And so, you know, when you get into some of this, this differentiation, it just doesn't seem like laws for other aspects of life change as radically from state to state as do the gun laws. And that's primarily because in a historical context, gun laws have always been handled at the state level. The federal government really didn't start getting involved in gun laws until the 1930s. And even then it was more based on uh, some possession like machine gun uh, possession laws and also import export type laws. It didn't really get into carry laws unless you run federal property. So the states have all developed a different approach to this, and it you know it can make it difficult when traveling. And that's you know that aspect kind of motivated me to say, well, you know, I hate to see an otherwise law-abiding citizen, especially a fellow gun owner, you know, get screwed for the rest of his life because he gets a felony because what he's doing at home doesn't necessarily match when he crosses into another state. And uh, and that's kind of where I got the idea to write the book uh, to not necessarily give a magna opus on every gun law for every state, because you could write an encyclopedia on that, and most people aren't going to want to get into something that detailed, but something that just kind of gives you the old one-page executive summary that kind of tells you the do's and don'ts and what to watch for if you're a casual traveler 
for maybe a vacation, you know, outside your home state. So let's talk about the book um, because, again, I, I've had this book seemingly forever. I get the new update every year, and I'm using it uh, even when people, act, you know, contact Buckeye Firearms Association and ask questions. If I need a quick reference, you know, I'm familiar with what's in Ohio, but someone will ask me. They'll say, "Well, you know, I'm." driving to Indiana or I'm, I'm going to drive all the way out to Nevada or something like that. You know, what What do I do? How do I plan the trip? Well, I whip out the book. It's one reference. There are some other references out there, but, you know, this is something that you can carry with you. You can flip to the page uh, that, that, you know, a particular state is on, and it's, uh, it's just really an easy, handy reference. So, again, we're talking about the Traveler's Guide to the firearm laws of the 50 states. And if I'm correct, this is the 26th edition. So you've been doing this for 26 years. And if my math is correct, that means you started in 1996. And yeah. uh, and you've been selling it ever since. And I saw on your website when I was preparing for this podcast that you've sold more than a million copies of this book. That that's amazing, since most people who write a book probably don't even sell a thousand copies. Well, that was my fear at first, because when I when I did the book, it was more of just like a little reference guide to give out to friends and stuff. And then my father, who was very much into RV travel, he said, you know, this is something, these questions come up all the time in Highways Magazine, which was the premier magazine at the time for um, RVers. And uh, he said, you know, you should maybe try to print this and market it. And I looked into publishing, and and I, I I tend to like to go it alone just because I feel like I like to have control of the situation. And you know, the publishing, yeah, they do take over certain aspects that you don't have to worry about, but then they also take control of it. And I thought, well, you know, self-publishing. You hear the horror stories of self-publishing. You know, I printed a thousand books. I got eight hundred in my garage, and. <laughs> I can't get rid of them. And so you kind of have to take a chance, but it just seemed like there was an interest out there. And that's what made me do it on my own is just because I felt like it was probably a book best done that way, especially with the whole, you know, gun issue back then. It wasn't as big a deal, but now it just seems like everything's gotten so what they call woke with publishing. You know, if you get into any kind of a subject matter that might be the, you know, the least bit not in line with what the powers of be might like, they either start to, they either start to tweak it or they just basically cut you off completely. So the more independent you can be, the better. And that's pretty much the way I felt when it came, when it came to publishing the book. It was something I could just do on my own and just go from there. So the book, the selling point on this book is that every individual page is one state. So I've got, I've got the book here in front of me. If I turn uh, to Ohio, I can see the Ohio laws summarized on one page, not all the gun laws, but the, right. the laws that are going to affect you if you're traveling through or to Ohio, or if I'm going to go to my home state of West Virginia, I flip to a different page and all the relevant, the most important laws that I'm going to be dealing with are going to be there on one page. And so, you know, it, it talks about things like the, the status of stand your ground or castle doctrine. Uh, you know, do they have licensed carry or permitless carry? Do you have to notify a law enforcement officer if you have a firearm? Things like that. Uh, because generally your interaction with law enforcement when you're traveling is going to be in your car. 
and right. if, if you're pulled over, for example. So that, that's how it's organized. Now, has the book always been organized in the same way, or is it has it evolved over time, or how did you come up with it, it, with doing it the way you do it? It used to focus exclusively on car travel, and then with more and more of these states getting into uh, carry with a permit, I started to kind of branch out, add things to it. If you look at the early editions, they didn't cover nearly as many points in the traveler's checklist as I do now, and that's because with the introduction of permits and also extended reciprocity, more states recognize more out-of-state permits. People may want to carry it on their person outside their car, so I try to cover some of the basic what I call gun-free zones, the prohibited areas where the state will not let you carry even with a permit, and also preemption laws. I think the important thing, one of the, one of the, I guess, the less sexy but probably more important areas that people tend to forget about are preemption laws. And a book like this would be next to impossible if these states didn't have, a lot of these states didn't have strong preemption laws. And the uh, NRA started pushing preemption back in the 80s, and it was a very logical beginning to enhancing the right to carry because you know, a lot of people, they'll say, boy, it used to be great back in the 50s, and now, you know, everything's gotten bad. And I kind of agree. A lot of things have gotten worse, you know, in, in terms of, you know, ownership restrictions and whatnot. But we've actually become much easier and better and less restrictive in the carry realm because of the way carry's been structured. Uh, the idea the first need to preempt local laws, which the NRA pushed that back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Then you get the shell issue. Uh, carry laws that replace the, you know, I know the sheriff, he's going to give me a permit, but if I don't know him and I'm not his friend and I don't play cards with him, then I'm not going to get a permit. Getting rid of those laws and getting the shell issue laws. And then finally, getting into constitutional carry where there's no permit required and uh, uh, you still have restrictions, you know, places you can't carry, uh, you know, whether or not you have to notify law enforcement, all those come into play. But then uh, the idea of having to have a permit that is renewed each year, at least for in-state carry, is uh, is not a requirement. So, you know, it's one of those things where when you you get right into it, probably uh, the the aspects of carry have gotten um, uh, well overall better, but some states have gotten worse. You know, we see the blue state red state divide, and uh, yeah, it's probably become a lot more restrictive in some of these bluer states like California, because, you know, I was talking to a fellow in California, an older fella, a couple of weeks ago, and he said he remembers, and he's like in his 80s, he remembers being able to carry a gun, you know, loaded in plain view, you know, walking around downtown, you know, wherever uh, in California. Well, all that's been eliminated, and pretty much California is a really tough state, especially for the out-of-state person to carry. And now there are some counties in California that do issue the concealed weapon permits, but it just depends on what county you're in. And so California's got a lot worse than it used to be. And, you know, remember, California was was Reagan country at one time. Now it's it's gone, and it probably will never come back to what it used to be. And, and, it's gotten other a, and, and Scott, it's gotten a lot more political. People forget yes. that the gun issue wasn't always a big political issue. I mean, I think that started yeah. in the 60s and 70s. A lot of people will say it started after the assassination of Kennedy because at that time, and I, I have old Sears and Roebuck catalogs that have pages and pages of firearms, and you could order firearms from a catalog and yeah. just pay for it, and it arrives uh, through the mail. 
And yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, people forget that that John F. Kennedy was a life member of the National Rifle Association, and probably, you know, from a personal standpoint, pro-gun. Yeah, you're right. It was not political uh, until you know the late '60s, early '70s, and that's kind of what happened with the NRA. You know, they had the what they call the Cincinnati Revolution or Revolt in 1977, where they said we've got to go from just being a basic gun organization that promotes safe shooting to a finally honed political organization because if we don't get political we're going to lose our rights and we need to have some kind of a lobbying presence in Washington like everybody else because uh, you know with the, the 1968 gun control act did a lot to change things and uh, it was you know it was kind of scary the way it passed because it it did get a lot of bipartisan support and uh, you know um, I think Johnson when he pushed that law he had a lot of actors in Hollywood, uh, even ones that were you know, relatively conservative, like uh, Jimmy Stewart and even you know Charlton Heston. I don't want to criticize him, but back then he was, you know, a little more uh, prone to you know f- follow within what was considered the right thing to do. And I think the one actor in Hollywood that opposed it was John Wayne, and he was always there for us. But uh, you know, it was a case where oh, this is a good law; it's going to keep criminals from getting guns. And they had to reform a lot of that in 86 because, you know, you ended up getting dealers arrested on paperwork uh, violations and <laughs> having a felony for every time they missed the wrong spot in the record-keeping book. So, you know, it was a case where these laws get passed and a lot of bad things happen as a result, and yet they're always put forth as being the, you know, the, 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 the way to prevent the bad guys from getting the guns. And it always ends up restricting the good guy. So uh, now I, I'm always curious about how books are put together. How do you keep this book updated? Because you cover 50 states. Again, uh, you know, I, I deal with Ohio, and it, it can be difficult. I'm, I'm always referencing the Ohio Revised Code to figure out, right. you know, to remind myself, okay, you know, what's, what's legal or illegal when someone asks a really technical question. But 50 states, how do you keep up with 50 states? What's, the, what's your process for that? Well, it's a layered process, and it, and it does take time because you don't want to just rely upon one source. I I focus initially on the primary sources, both the legislative websites that cover what bills are being introduced, you know, what their um, status is in certain committees, and then what actually passes and becomes an enrolled piece of legislation. Also, I have a legal research site that I use through the Kentucky Bar that actually researches the basic statutes that do, you know, go into effect. Have to keep track of court cases. You know, some of these laws uh, they go in, they, they pass, and then two months before they go into effect, there's a court challenge, and it holds it up. And it's like, okay, you think it passed? You know, the governor signed it, but then there's a challenge to it. And what happens with the court cases happen with uh, the the whole thing involving carrying national parks. Uh, right before the Bush administration finished in 2008, they made a, a rule change to the Code of Federal Regulations saying that you could carry in, in, in national parks. And it was going to go into effect, I think, uh, what was it? I think February 8th. And it was basically all set, everything was great. And then, like a week before it went into effect, uh, a federal judge jumps in, you know, in a, I would, you know, classify it as a, as a relatively left area politically, I think it was out in California and puts a temporary restraining order on it because there's no environmental impact statement. (laughs) Well, what environmental impact statement do you need for the right to carry in a national park? None, but because it would be required under other federal regulations that went into effect and actually what was, what everybody thought was already good to go, it was held up for a year until the Senate 
moved in and actually passed a law that amended the federal code, which you know couldn't be affected by that. So those you know those things you have to take uh, note of. Then you uh, you keep track of certain internet sites that also keep this information out there. The NRA's ILA site, uh, you know, and then some pro gun sites like Handgun Law. You see exactly what's popping up there, but also you go to what I consider anti-gun sites like the Gifford Law Center site, which they are pro, you know, restrictive gun laws, but they might post things that will give you a clue as to some areas you may need to check just to kind of keep abreast of potential changes or changes that do occur. And then you you also uh, take a look at press uh, reports. Um, And those are probably the least accurate because the media knows the least about guns. And when a reporter that doesn't know much about guns writes about it, a lot of times, what he writes is not going to necessarily be accurate, but it might it might clue you into something else that you kind of need to follow. So it's kind of like an investigation. And you don't want to rely upon just one area because if you do that, you can miss certain things. You can miss, you know, certain things that pop up that uh, that might not necessarily be just a straight law change. And uh uh and yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's just a, it's just kind of a what I call like the layers of an onion. Uh, you know, you kind of peel each layer off, but you don't want to just rely upon one layer. You want to kind of go through each of the layers to make sure the subject you're looking at is is good. And and also when when you when you try to do the executive summary with just one page per state, you've got to find a way to summarize certain aspects that could be a lot more complicated and might require a lot more explanation, but you just don't have the room for it. And you kind of have to write like they teach journalists to write. You know, journalists are taught every word's worth 25 cents. And the more money you spend, the worse it is. So keep, you know, your verbiage down to a minimum. But in law, everything's very drawn out. You know, in law school, you'd read a 65-page case, and the judge could have probably said what he said in three sentences. But... (laughs) He goes on forever, and so you kind of have to pull yourself away from the legal analysis. And yeah, I guess, uh, I guess to, uh, attorneys are not exactly known for good writing. I, I you know, so um, I'm <laughs> aware of that. People, what you have to look at is is there there are two modes of, of of presentation. There's what I call the Jimmy Carter way. He loved to have a 400 page policy analysis. That was great, boy. It was convoluted, but he would sit down and read that and just enjoy every minute, and then he'd schedule White House tennis courts. And then you'd have the Reagan way of doing it. One page executive summary. I just want to know, you know, the basic, you know, overall view. And then, you know, and that was it. And, you know, and there, those are kind of the two extremes. And I kind of, with the book, try to lean towards the Reagan extreme, because I think that's kind of the way that most people who are taking a vacation somewhere would like to, you know, see it covered. You know, the high points, but not necessarily an analysis, because I tell you, you know, even as a lawyer, the the analysis it might be interesting. It might give you a lot more information as to how they got to that particular point, but it can be boring as hell. And that's why I know a lot of people aren't going to want to necessarily get the 400-page policy analysis. One of the interesting things in the book, uh, across the top of each page, uh, on the summary for each state, you have a freedom rating, and it goes all the way from zero up to a hundred. I've always been curious, how do you do that? How do you calculate that rating? Well, I focus primarily on how easy it is for a person who is from another state to carry a gun in a state other than his own for defensive purposes with as little restriction as possible, either in a vehicle or on his person in a generally public area. And so, you know, some people, they they look at that and like, for instance, 
Michigan, I don't rate as highly as some people might think I should rate it. Uh, and it's not because if you've got a Michigan permit, things work out great for you. It does. You know, Michigan's got some good good laws. The problem is the way they've got the law set up, if you're coming from out of state, you got really just one way to have a, a handgun in your possession, and that is if you have a permit from your home state. If you don't, if, say, you don't have any kind of a permit whatsoever or you got a permit from another state, you really can't bring the gun into Michigan. And even though, you know, and it's like you could do the McClure-Volkmer thing applies if you're just passing through. The problem is Michigan is not a state that people pass through. It's located kind of up above everything else. So you really can't claim you're just passing through to another state because you're kind of up there to stay and you're going to get stuck. So, you know, it's why I rate it. I, I based on what I'm looking at as a traveler, not necessarily – you know how bad how bad or good the state might be just for a basic resident who can get a permit. You know it's easy to get a permit here. It's tough to get a permit here. Like Indiana's the same way. Indiana's got some great laws, and it's very easy to get a permit. They recognize all other out-of-state permits. Problem is, unless you have a permit, you really can't carry a loaded handgun in Indiana. Uh, you you know you're going to have to have that permit. You can open carry with a permit. You can carry it in your car without a permit, but if you don't have a permit, you know, say you're availing yourself a constitutional carry, you've decided not to renew your permit, you're kind of out of luck when you hit Indiana. And so even though Indiana is a great state for guns, if you've got a permit and all the rest, if I'm coming into it uh, and you, you know, I don't have a permit, then it'd be a lot tougher for me to have a gun for self-protection. I'm kind of looking at it from the lowest common denominator, what, you know, the least restrictive ability for me to defend myself if I'm going into another state. So based on your experience, because I'm sure that you're dealing with, with this sort of thing all the time, what parts of the law tend to trip people up when they're traveling? Well, and it's a very good question. I think um, one of the things that come out lately is uh, the recognition of permits. Someone will see on the Internet their permit is good, say, in, in another state. Okay, I'm all great, you know, good to go. But then what they don't realize is the permit's good under several qualified conditions. Number one, you got to be 21 or older. And even though you might have gotten a permit issued at the age of 18, because the state allows that, you're not going to be good in the other state even if you got that permit unless you're 21 or older. And a lot of states require you to be a resident of the state that issued the permit for them to recognize you. So someone might hear that, hey, you know, my New Hampshire permit's recognized in South Carolina. That's great. Well, unless you're a New Hampshire resident, you're not going to get recognized when you go through South Carolina because they only recognize you if you're a resident of the state that issued the permit. And uh, they will ask to see your driver's license to see where you're residing uh, if they check your permit. And that that can trip people up. And also uh, whether or not to notify a policeman that you have the gun in your vehicle. A lot of people don't like to you know say anything they don't have to. I, I understand that completely. But there are some states that are going to require you to be the one to volunteer the fact you've got the gun with the permit. And uh, you know, that can kind of get hairy because sometimes people, you know, if, if they say it in the wrong way, if they say, uh, oh, by the way, I've got a gun here, it's like, yeah, it might freak the officer out. Now, if you say I have a concealed weapons permit and I've also got a handgun and a snap tip holster, you know, you explain it to them. You know, either way should be fine for notification, but sometimes it's the way you present yourself that can, you know, make the situation work better for you. And also something that is probably, you know, beyond the 
the scope of a of just a basic, you know, rundown of book is the self defense laws. You know, I cover whether it's got a stand your ground law or whether it, uh, you know, the stand your ground law only applies to vehicles or if it applies to, you know, every area that you have a right to be. But the problem people run into with that is no matter what happens to you in another state, if you get a bad prosecutor, even if you got some of the best stand your ground laws in the country, you might end up still getting charged. It's a very complicated area. Once, you know, you fire the gun, you know, it kind of goes beyond the actual carry aspect, which I think is what trips most people up. It's not they're going to have to shoot somebody. It's the fact that they are carrying a gun in some minor violation, like, oh, the gun is supposed to be in a holster when it's concealed, and you had it in your waistband. So, you're, you know, it's a minor violation, but it can still hold you up. If you shoot somebody just because the the state's got a great stay in your ground law doesn't mean you might not be held up because that's a big deal. And what I try to do is just cover the states that you're more likely to be okay in, like a state like Kentucky where our stay in your ground law is pretty strong, or a state where, uh, you know, if you exercise your right of self-defense, you know, hey, it means defending yourself. You have to say, I'm going to, you know, I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by 6, but it's difficult to really explain the the basic parameters of a stain your ground law because so many other things come into effect, and that's where you're going to probably end up getting involved with uh, in the court system. Uh, but that's more on the you know on the basis of it, when you have to use the gun, and hopefully it's like an insurance policy, you know, for, for fire insurance. You've got it, but you'll never have to use it because <laughs> I don't think most people want to have to go into that situation unless they absolutely have to. What's your general advice since we're talking about traveling? What's your advice for handling? Traffic stops. Now, I know it's going to be the laws are different in every state, but is there sort of a universal, you know, set of tips that you could give people so that they could handle traffic stops and make sure that everyone stays calm and everything goes smoothly? Um, what I recommend uh, is if you're pulled over by a policeman and you've got the gun on your person, and you're, of course, allowed to have it, you've got a concealed weapons permit that's recognized by that particular uh, state. Uh, you know, you have your insurance and your driver's license ready and also mention to the policeman that, yes, I do have a concealed weapons permit. I have a gun and a snapped hip holster and let him know you've got the gun legally because, you know, the gun might be seen and you just don't know how he's going to react. Other people say, no, if I don't have to, um, tell the policeman, I'm not going to tell him. And that's fine too. I respect that. I would probably mention it to them. Uh, but other people say, no, it just heightens the situation and they'd rather not. And that's why in the book, I just give the information and say, you make your own uh, mind up. I would generally you know, tell the fellow about that. I would uh, not volunteer any information. I wouldn't say, oh, but yeah, I've got some guns in the trunk here. You know, he doesn't need to know that. And, you know, need to, you know, call into uh, question what you may be having, what you may have in your trunk. What's going to affect the traffic stop is what's on your immediate person. And a policeman does have the right to pat you down if he thinks you might, if he has a reasonably articulable suspicion you have a weapon, even if there's no probable cause. If he thinks you might have a gun for his own protection, he can pat you down. Now, if he wants to search the car, he's going to have to have some probable cause. And I always recommend that people never give any kind of consent. Oh, sure, go ahead and search the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. That if, if something happens against you by you giving that consent, you kind of ruin your ability to to question or challenge that kind of a search in court. So I always recommend not, uh, you know, uh, uh, allowing a general search. You know, it's a case where there's no need for you. You know, you, you don't want to be held up, and there's no there's no reason he would have to. Um, 
uh, unless he suspects criminal activity. And then at that point, he's going to have to search it on on his own on his own word or his own suspicions, and not rely upon you giving any kind of consent. So, uh, uh, Scott, do you see this book going digital in the future? Uh, you know, it's been a it's been a printed copy. That's always how we get it. Uh, I think that's what people have always expected. Uh, is there any chance that you're going to have like an online version of it, or it's going to change a little bit in the future? Uh, yeah, I've I've had an ebook or a digital version since about I guess about 2014, 2015 on the site. I if people have an option; they can get it what they call ebook print copy combo if they went to the site, and they can also just buy a straight ebook. Um, and and I started offering it just because of what you said. A lot of people like the digital version, and it seems like. You know, a, a decent number sell, but I, I would say even when people are given the choice, from what I sell off the website, the vast majority are still print copies. It seems like people still like to have something they can hold in their hands. So they can they can get the print copy, or they can get the print copy and the digital version and just the digital version. But based on how sales have gone for the past six or seven years, I've noticed that still with, with a book this size, people tend to like to have the printed copy. And if they if they do get the printed copy uh, and the ebook, it's it's kind of in, in a together format, kind of a combination format. And uh, uh, I uh, I just think that, you know, based on what they what customers tell me, uh, it's always nice to have something in, in writing in front of you. And, and I'm definitely that way. I, I love to read printed books and I have the hardest time trying to read something on my on my wife's uh, smartphone and, and, and that may just be the case with a lot of the customers I have. So Buckeye Firearms Association has sold this book for quite a while. It's one of the ways that we raise funds. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in the book, uh, we have just received the latest edition for 2022. In fact, uh, Angela, my administrative assistant, just sent me photos where she actually drove down to your office, picked up several boxes of these books, brought them back, and we have them for sale on the website. If you go to BuckeyeFirearms.org, click on the shop link. There's a kind of a red bar across the top of the site. Click on shop, and the first thing you're going to see is the Traveler's Guide to the Firearm Laws of the 50 States. This is the new 2022 edition. Uh, order your copy. We'll ship it to you, free shipping. And, uh, Scott, the, the last question I have for you is I know that you've sold a lot of these books and you're working on it all the time. Are you ever going to write another book? Well, um, you know, people have asked me that, and I, 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 I you know, who knows? I hate, I hate to, you know, get into a situation where I say never because I always say never, say never. But it just it, this is this is very fulfilling to me because I feel like I'm helping people avoid a problem that could be a lot more expensive than just you know a fifteen dollar book, and also it takes up so much of my time as far as writing and researching it that I have never had a chance to kind of sit back and write something that. That might be not necessarily a how-to book like this, but maybe you know some kind of a, you know, a, a an opinion book on gun laws or politics. I, I, I kind of I'm the type I like to stay in my lane, and this has worked out well for me so far. So, if I do something, uh, you know, I would definitely want to do something in an area that that I enjoy or I have a, have some knowledge of, which would be guns. But for now, I just plan to keep updating the book and and keep distributing it. Well, it it was a great idea for a book. I think that you were first. To do this, again, there are some other references out there, but this is always the one that I see. I know the NRA sells it. We sell it. 
and uh, really popular, very helpful, and I think you are doing a service. So this is probably not what you went to law school. You know, you didn't have this in mind when you, oh, right. when, you exactly. when you got your degree, but, you know, this is probably a way where you can help a lot more people than you would if you just had a normal practice. So, you know, thanks for everything you do. Thanks for keeping up with this book. It was great to talk to you, Scott. I'm, I'm hoping we can have you back again sometime. Oh, I would love to, Dean. It's been, it's been great speaking with you. I mean, great interview, and, and I appreciate all the nice questions. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.